As we believe in and get to know who God is, he defines who we are. He called himself the I am, but in that, he reveals who I am. He reveals who we truly are and can be. He says he is the resurrection and the life, and we have the opportunity to live that life right now. That's today on the podcast. it's Christy from the Tower Hill production team. Thank you so much for tuning in to our Tower Hill podcast. Wherever or whenever you are listening, we hope that this podcast blesses you and that you'll feel free to share it with someone that you know so that they'll feel blessed too. We are deep into our summer sermon series called the I Am, where Pastor Jason helps us to discover what Jesus really believed about the scriptures, himself, and why it matters for our daily life. And today, We're talking about what he meant when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. So let's listen in right now. Hey, welcome to Tower Hill Church Online. I'm Pastor Jason. You're in the right place. Let's get started. Let's get into our message series. We're in the middle of a series called I Am, Revealing the True Identity of Jesus. And we think this is really vitally important to our life of faith because if you understand who Jesus is, you start to understand who you are and your path becomes clear. We're talking about the use of signs in Scripture, that signs always point to something beyond themselves, even signs that we see every day. Danger, thin ice. The sign itself isn't the danger. It's pointing to the danger. And in a similar way, signs work that way for us spiritually. When we see signs in our own life or we see signs in Scripture, these signs are always intended to point to the presence and power of God among His people. And the purpose of the signs was always to elicit faith, to draw people closer in relationship with Jesus. It's so that people will believe. That was always the point of signs. I think sometimes we make such a big deal of signs, like why doesn't Jesus do these kind of miraculous things today? Which, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. I actually think he does. But we have a tendency to explain a lot of miracles away because, I don't know, we're kind of scared to believe in the supernatural or something. But But anyway, these signs in Scripture and in our own lives are always to elicit faith. They're always to draw us into what God really wants to say. It's always a kind of a way of getting our attention. One of the biggest signs that we see in Scripture and the way that God spoke to His people was in the moment of the burning bush to Moses. We've been talking about this the last few weeks. And it was such an important sign because this was the time where God uses that. He gets Moses' attention in order to deliver something really important, that is to introduce himself to Moses, to give him his mission, to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And when Moses understandably kind of balks at that idea, like, well, who do I say sending me? I need, like, give me some backup here. And his response is really, really profound. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, of course, God wasn't just using bad grammar. God was saying something really profound. He's the eternally present one. I am. He's outside of time and space. Somewhere in the past or in the future, he is always right now, which is really like one of the most comforting things I can think of in life. But anyway, when he introduced himself, he used a Hebrew construction that we know as Yahweh, which means I am, and it was a name that was so holy, it wasn't... Um, something that was believed that you should speak about in ancient Jewish culture. They said, you know, so they would say in those 
scriptures, they would use the term the Lord instead of Yahweh. But when the Greek translation of the Hebrew came out, the Hebrew Old Testament, uh, the term ego eimi, the Greek ego eimi, was used in place of Yahweh, and it means the same thing, I am. So the point of all of this, remember, is that Jesus uses these I am sayings in the Gospel of John, seven of them, in order to tell people, I'm, I am the I am. I am the one you've been waiting for. I am that same Lord that told Moses this at the burning bush, which of course was a wild concept and it got Jesus into a lot of trouble, so much so that it, those were the charges upon which he was hanged on the cross. We've looked at a few of these I am sayings so far, and just for a quick review, we've seen I am the bread of life was the first one, then I am the good shepherd, and then last week, Pastor Teresa introduced the idea that I am the light of the world. Before we dig into our I am saying for today, I have a very important summer question to ask you. How many of you have plants that are thriving this summer, right? So show of hands, virtually, right? <laughs> How you doing? Are you a green thumb? Do you have vegetables growing this summer? Let me tell you something about myself. I love gardens. I do not love gardening. In fact, I don't know the first thing about it. We kill every plant that we own. It's just how it is. I don't know. Some people have the gift. We were denied that spiritual gift. Uh, I remember this time years ago when we had moved. It was right out of seminary, and we had a, a hydrangea plant. And we were moving houses, and we had when we were moving it, we put it in a black garbage bag. I don't know, I guess that's what we had to transport it with. We had a black garbage bag, and we stuck it with all the stuff in the basement temporarily until we can kind of unpack. Well, we forgot about it. And it spent a year in our basement, not getting light, not getting water, nothing, covered in a black bag. And finally, when we realized that it was there, we're like, oh, shoot, the plant, the hydrangea. We love hydrangeas. We, we wanted to, like, oh, well. And we, <laughs> we take the garbage bag off, and it was blooming. We were dumbfounded. We're like, this went over a year without food or water, and it somehow managed to bloom. And I'm like, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. We can't believe this miracle plant has somehow survived. Now, obviously, it must have gotten some moisture or something. Something happened. I don't know what it was, but Karen and I saw that as a little bit of a miracle. And then I most recently heard of those plants. You've heard of these called the Rose of Jericho? It's a plant that it, it shrivels up like a tumbleweed. This is out in the ancient Near East. It shrivels up like a tumbleweed, and it's just kind of like dead, but it's protecting, it's sort of like hibernating. It's protecting the flowers inside or the seeds inside. And whenever it rains, it just takes a little bit of water, and within a matter of hours, the plant will come to life. It will bloom. It's called the resurrection plant, which is kind of cool. I think the Rose of Jericho. And, you know, there are some cultures and some people that actually consume the Rose of Jericho because they believe that it has healing properties, right? I mean, after all, it's a resurrection plant. And you might think that sounds strange, but I don't think it's any stranger than the fact that people are drinking kale smoothies out there. I mean, come on, kale smoothies? It's like, like I'd rather just take the dirt in the earth and grind it up. And I, I think I would get the same flavor. I know, listen, I know. Some of you kale apologists out there always get upset when I mention this, but, but why do people drink kale? Because we don't want to die. We want to be healthy. This 
this is really an indicator of how our culture is obsessed with death, or maybe to put it more sharply or more pointedly, the fear of death. Listen, my kind of smoothie is just like this one. Like, can't we just stick from McDonald's fries in a jar and like find a way to consume that? And why won't that be healthy, right? That's the kind of kale smoothie I want. Uh, Can you put some fries in that? But in all seriousness, we are obsessed as a culture with the fear of death. I mean, this is this is what drives a lot of our behavior and a lot of the things that I mean, even just advertisers and uh, things that they draw to our attention are kind of all to do with playing on this fear of death. Thoughts of the afterlife and resurrection are all around this big question, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me when I stop breathing in the body? Is there something else? Is something going to happen? I mean, resurrection is a hugely popular topic in our culture. Now, when it comes to the Christian faith, resurrection is absolutely everything. 1 Corinthians 15, 13, and 14 say this, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Listen, the resurrection isn't just an important thing, right? It's the only thing when it comes to following Jesus. If the resurrection didn't happen, we all might as well just like hit stop on this video and and find something else to do with my life. We all might as well just stop wasting our time. If the resurrection isn't true, then we aren't saved. Listen, there are a lot of people who think, and we've been talking about this, who think that Jesus is just kind of like a good spiritual teacher, but they don't want to accept the resurrection as a reality. And, And my point is, well, then why bother? The resurrection is what changed reality itself. What's fascinating to me, of course, is not just that culture isn't really looking to the Bible for answers about the afterlife. Neither are Christians. You see in this chart from the Barna Research Group, how Americans relate to Christianity is changing. So this shows over the last 20 years, at one point, you know, some 45% would consider themselves practicing Christians, and that's down to 25%. And you'll see those other lines of non-practicing Christians and non-Christians are going up. The bottom line is even Christians aren't getting all their spiritual information from the Christian faith. They're not getting all their spiritual information from Scripture. They're kind of getting it wherever they can find it. They're looking for hope. Looking for hope elsewhere, though. We have this burgeoning spirituality industry that is worth billions of dollars. And they spend, there's so much money and ink spent on this. I mean, books and magazines and programs and seminars and, I mean, all sorts of different media where we can engage with the idea of spirituality. And most of it, I don't know, a lot of it's kind of innocuous, but some of it is really confusing and actually can be damaging to what we say we believe as Christians. And it just sort of seeps in. We get some things that that aren't really true or that the Bible doesn't really talk about. We just kind of adopt because it's around us all the time. Now, I get it. We go looking for answers. Like I'm thinking about spiritual mediums, like Teresa Caputo, right? Uh, Long Island Medium. I don't know if anybody's watched that show. It's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And I got to tell you this, on a personal level, I'm, I've always been tempted to go that route, to talk with a medium, really because of all the important people in my life that I've lost. And, you know, I want that comfort. I want to know, are they doing okay? Can I communicate with them? I miss them. I love them. You know, I'm thinking about my mom and my stepdad and my dad and like, 
you know, whatever issues were kind of going on with them, you feel like you need some resolution. I get it. I get it. But, you know, Scripture talks, and by the way, I think mediums are absolutely real. But also, Scripture is very clear on that we shouldn't be consulting with mediums because it's actually, we don't know what spirits we're talking to. Like, that's a little bit scary to me. And, and the idea is just saying, like, you should put your faith in God, and I put your faith in trying to connect with the dead. Worry about connecting with the living, and the Lord's going to kind of take care of the rest. I know it's tough, because I know maybe there's some of you out there who might feel differently, but at least you have to ask yourself the question, is what I'm learning from spirituality, is it supported by what Scripture says, or is it teaching me something different that's kind of like a less than version of what God wants me to know? I mean, what does Scripture really say? Now, it's not just talking to mediums and all that or psychic friends. Um, it's like the Psychic Friends Network. Remember that? Dion Warwick had like the psychic friends, and then they went bankrupt, and I was like, didn't they see that coming? Anyway, uh, so uh, even, you know, not just mediums, but what about the wellness industry? And it's about health and fitness, and that's all good. That's all really important. But if you put all your hope in that, there's like no hope left for the gospel. And you sort of get consumed by, uh, by wellness, and you don't even think about, like, well, what does God say about wellness? What does God say about what's going to make me a healthy person? Or things like reincarnation. I've heard this a lot from Christians about reincarnation. There's absolutely nothing in Scripture that affirms reincarnation. It's just not a thing in Christianity, although there are some people who really believe strongly about that. So, Listen, no matter where you fall, I'm not here to judge you for what you believe. I'm here to just simply clarify what Christians believe according to Scripture. So what does Scripture say about the afterlife, about resurrection? Well, I think there are a couple of important things to acknowledge. So the Old Testament gives us, these are just a couple of passages. I could pick many, but here's just one, or actually two. The first is 1 Samuel 2.6. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. Listen, just as God created all reality through his breath, through his power, we believe that God alone is the giver of life. That if any of us have life, it's because of God. Whether it's life in the body or eternal life, resurrected life, God is the giver of life. I could look to a lot of other things, and I can easily get confused to find where the source of life is. Now, in Job, this is interesting, Job actually says, this in chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Kind of strange, right? What's he affirming? He's affirming, even as far back as the Old Testament, even in the book of Job, which is a a very early book of the Old Testament, even in the book of Job, this idea that resurrection isn't just spiritual, it's bodily somehow. And that's a weird thought because, you know, we think, well, you know, if we pass away, our bodies are going to be in the ground or, you know, kind of wherever they get laid to rest, and then our spirit's going to go be with God. So what does it mean that resurrection is both spiritual and bodily? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. But clearly, the Old Testament thinking about resurrection was that if anyone's going to have life, it's because of God. And resurrection is something that is both spiritual and bodily. Now, Jesus picks up on these themes as he goes about his teaching and his acting, and of course, one of the biggest signs and miracles of the New Testament 
is when he raises Lazarus from the dead. This is actually a, a moment that people, it's, it's a tipping point where people decide we need to get rid of Jesus because this freaked people out. The idea that he could raise somebody from the dead um, was scary. It was a scary thing. But Jesus picks up on this theme in this really big miracle. And the way that the story begins is he gets word that Lazarus is sick. Now, Lazarus was a friend, and I would even dare say a close friend, a brother of Mary and Martha, and they all knew each other. And he hears that Lazarus is sick, and he doesn't come running to the rescue. And in fact, he waits a few days, and Lazarus dies. And so naturally, you would think like friends of Jesus, who, by the way, believe that he's the Messiah, are wondering, what gives? Where were you? How could you let this happen? Well, let's get into it. This is uh, in John chapter 11. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. There it is. There's the I am statement. Ego me. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Again, God alone is the giver of life. And so what Jesus is saying is, I am the God who gives life. It, you could not have a more clear statement of who Jesus thought he was and what he believed and what he was saying. It was very, very clear. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then Jesus said, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. There it is. The sign, even such a dramatic sign as this, is for the sake of belief, for the sake of drawing people into faith. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. I mean, this is like the most dramatic story that you can even imagine, right? 
crazy. And even in the midst of this moment of a miracle and resurrection and the promise, and it's kind of confusing. I mean, Martha sort of understands that resurrection is going to happen one day, you know, on the resurrection day, which was uh, this idea of, of like an apocalyptic idea that on the last day, and scripture definitely talks about this, that on the last day, there's going to be like this final judgment and the resurrection of the dead, and that's when all that's going to happen. She clearly didn't think that meant now. So it, it was a little bit confusing. And, and what does that mean? Does it mean that we're not really with God or resurrected until that last kind of apocalyptic day, or is it something else? How does all this, in other words, address the question, what will happen to me? And why did Jesus weep? I, don't you find that interesting? Even though he knew that it was going to end in life, he wept. And I just think this shows how much Jesus loves us. He was so moved in the moment by their sadness, by the, the gravity of the moment, that he wept alongside them. He mourned with them, shared in their experience, even though knowing it was going to end in life. And I think if anybody's feeling troubled right now, if you feel like you are down and you are hurting, just know that Jesus is weeping with you. And he, he knows, he's got a plan to draw life from even this moment. But it doesn't mean he doesn't care about what you're feeling now. So how does this speak to our idea of resurrection or what is it teaching us? I think a few things, and I think these are worth kind of keeping in your, in your memory as you think about the afterlife, as you think about resurrection. What does it mean that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life? Well, first of all, we believe that resurrection is both now and one day. In other words, there will be a final resurrection day when bodily, somehow, some way, our bodies are resurrected and we are kind of reunited with our spirit and with God. I, I have no idea what that's going to look like, but it's clearly something that was believed because Jesus was here to show us what resurrection is going to look like. And Jesus' resurrected body, it was Jesus, but it was different. Remember, he was like appearing in and out of rooms, and sometimes people didn't recognize him, and sometimes they did, and it was still Jesus. He had wounds on his body that you can touch and feel, but it was a resurrected body, a different body than the body he had departed earth with. Now, the time between Jesus' spirit uh, in body reuniting was three days, but there was still time when those two were apart. So we understand that resurrection is both, both and, right? We are made new now in the spirit. We are resurrected now. When we come to faith in Jesus, which by the way, why he focuses so much on these signs that draw us into faith, we are made new in faith right now. We are resurrected in spirit right now. We come to life. We are like that resurrection plant. We're a tumbleweed, and then the living water hits our hearts, and we come to life, and we see new life in Jesus. And so it's both now and it's one day, which um, I know it's confusing, but clearly there's something about that in what Jesus is trying to show us. The second is that when we die, we are with God. Scripture says this, to, be, to depart from this earth is to be with God, that we are with God. Spiritually, even if though our bodies are here, we are with God. And I think this is important too. So I know some of you, you come from a Catholic background, and I know that there's a teaching about purgatory, but there's nothing in Scripture that talks about like a waiting place or a, a place of trial where we're kind of refined until we get, you know, either to heaven or to hell. There's really none of that. It just says when we die, we're with God. 
And if you have faith in Jesus, I mean, there's no prayer. You're with God right away. You're not waiting. In other words, you're not waiting until the, that last day, the resurrection day, in order to be with God. But here's the most important thing about resurrection. And this is where I think most of us get it wrong a little bit. This idea of resurrection, that we're resurrected now in the spirit and one day bodily, this idea of resurrection of new life should transform our lives every single day. Our lives should be working for the good of God in this world every day. Why? Because we know what's been sacrificed for us. We know how this thing ends. It ends in life. It ends in resurrection. You've heard me say this illustration before, but only because it really works. Is it's, it's like a DVR for your spirit. <laughs> it's like, you know, you're watching your favorite sports team, and if you, if you know how the game plays out, if you know if your team wins, you go back and watch it on DVR, and, and you see all their mistakes and their shortcomings, or they fall behind, and it doesn't bother you at all. Why? Because you know that you've won. Your lows aren't quite so low anymore, because you know in the end there is victory. And this is true in our lives. We know in the end there is victory. And so no matter what we're going through here and now, it changes it. It changes it forever. It's like a big fat punctuation mark of hope in the midst of despair. It should transform everything about our lives because we believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And if we believe in him, we will not die. I think the biggest miracle in our life is that God resurrects us, that we could be dormant for 95, 105 years. And then Jesus, the I am, the living water, can bring us to life. Maybe a better question isn't what's going to happen to me, but what's going to happen for me right now? Listen, I know there are some of you who've been on the fence about your faith in Jesus. You're not sure what to believe. It's okay to be where you are, but I believe Jesus wants something for you. He wants to show you what resurrected life is for right now. Listen, we think of resurrection as the hereafter, but it's really the here and now. That's the most important part. We can live resurrected new lives in the way of Jesus for the rest of our lives here on earth. And then we live resurrection every single day. Listen, as we get to know and believe in the I am, he continues to refine who I say I am. He continues to show us who we all are. He is the resurrection and the life. And we have an opportunity to live the resurrected life. I pray that today you don't wait another minute to accept what he's offering you. It will change everything. Thank God. Amen.